if there's no difference between males and females, then females aren't unique in what they thirst for in their soul. Okay. Value is what women are thirsting for. And you can only experience value if you admit that you have a soul. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. We are here to help teach you how to critically think for yourself along your journey of faith that you have to do that journey on your own. We can't do the work for you, but we can come alongside you to encourage you, to challenge you, and to tell some fun jokes along the way. My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host, and we cannot do the Salty Pastor without the Salty Pastor himself dr douglas peak who's coming in extra, extra salty, salty today. today my wife got me this shirt greetings everyone i'm really glad that uh you are joining us today i've been thinking about this whole idea of critical thinking and it's really interesting because uh the opposite of critical thinking is letting somebody else think for you and that's really the whole reason we do the salty pastor is to help you think for yourself and i think that's really critically important uh ha, pun intended critically important because it's <laughs> critical thinking skills so it's a really big deal and uh i hope that it's helping you i hope that when you listen whether you listen uh through maybe just uh, the podcast audio only while you're you're doing chores or you're working out or traveling or commuting which is awesome maybe you watch on our YouTube channel. So wh however you do it, I just hope that it's something that helps you really develop your own critical thinking skills. So welcome to the Salty Pastor. I'm glad you're a part of our listening audience. So we are currently in our series titled Don't Freak Out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, really, as we talk through this, we're going through this in a study in First Peter, right? And mm -hmm. he's he's discussing why we should have peace in Jesus Christ, right? Right, in the midst of suffering in and persecution. Suffering and craziness, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so um, in First Peter, he, he wrote it to a church. It's important to understand that he was writing it to a group of people, right? Mm -hmm. Having yep. that context of why he did it. And then we're taking those principles that, that he's speaking to mm -hmm. that church about and bringing them into the modern day and saying, this is still applicable mm -hmm. to us now, right? Yeah, and our, our world is becoming more uh, unhealthy just across the board. I think that... Uh, we've taken kind of for granted a little bit uh, our society and what has happened is now the society is bifurcating. It's really going in two opposite directions in the difficulty. And this is why critical thinking skills are so important is that the proposition that, well, these two polarized worldviews can live alongside each other and at peace. And that of course is a falsehood because they can't because one of the worldviews has as its expressed purpose to eliminate the other worldview. So by its very claim, it won't allow the other one to exist. And so I think it's really important to realize, oh, wow, we're starting to see the ramifications of these ideologies that were seeded into American society back in the 70s. And then they started to really take root in our university system in the 90s. So I want to talk about kind of that context that we were talking about in First Peter of why he wrote it to that church, right? Okay, Having yeah. that understanding is important. Mm -hmm. And this book was um, him basically telling the people 
of that church not to freak out over the persecution of the Roman emperor Nero, right? We've yes. talked about Nero most uh, multiple times um, since starting this mm -hmm. on the podcast and during the sermons as well. And according to Tacitus, a Roman historian who mm -hmm. lived during this time, Nero blamed the Christians for a fire that he had actually started mm -hmm. and ended up burning down a huge chunk of Rome, right? Yes. Very and, bad. It's a massive, massive fire. And yeah. then he basically utilized that plant of a fire that he had done and the, the blame on the Christians to then further persecute them, right? Yes. And that's what yes. Peter's writing to this church about, of mm -hmm. not being afraid of. Yes. Don't freak out that this, he calls it later on, we'll say this, it goes, the fiery ordeal among you. Mm. In other words, it was pretty serious. And uh, we look at James and James wrote uh, the half brother of Jesus and the lead elder lead pastor at the church in Jerusalem. He wrote in his letter, which they believe his letter in the new Testament was one of the very first ones written is that he talks about persecution. And so these, these are separate persecutions or different ones. Mm. And so it's really interesting how uh, the church, especially the early church was constantly persecuted in really severe ways. So in chapter one, Peter focuses on the nature of our salvation. And so he's really establishing our new identity in Christ that we can survive and thrive even in the midst of the challenges because of who Christ has made us to be in him. And then in chapter two, he says, because of that, he's building in you into a spiritual house, right? And Jesus is the cornerstone of mm -hmm. this. So he's building you into something really powerful in the spiritual way. And this is how we're able to not like totally have a freak out or a meltdown or a fall apart. You know, your life totally falls apart whenever we face a downturn or a setback or even some type of severe persecution for just being a Christian. So, uh, we've talked about chapter one, chapter two, obviously it stands to reason. We should probably talk about chapter three. So chapter three, what, what are we doing in chapter three today? Pastor well, if Doug? you remember at the end of chapter two, he kind of basically was talking to slaves and he's saying look this is how you need to navigate the unjust system in which you live and then he picks right up because you have to remember when the new testament was written these were letters there wasn't chapters and verses right, right. they were full they were just letters. full yeah like a letter like they're just reading a book you know without like any breaks you, in modern day if we took our emails and then started putting chapter one yeah first exactly one. yeah hello mister yeah and they did that for a couple of reasons i won't go into it another time just because of time but basically what he does is he shifts from slaves now he talks to wives um and he gives them some specific instruction and this is what he says he goes wives first one of chapter three in the same way so notice he says in the same way. So he's referencing back to what he just taught the slaves. Now he's not trying to say that wives are slaves, but what he's saying is that the basic biblical principle that I just talked about there and the ones before are applicable to you. He says, wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that, and there's a purpose, if any of them do not believe the word, meaning the gospel of Christ, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So he's saying, look, women can have a powerful influence on a non-believing husband by living in a way that, uh, is a purity, a righteousness, a reverence. 
Verse three, her beauty, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, which was the thing in Roman society, right? Is that all the emphasis was on how you look, you know, very similar today, how you look was extremely important, particularly for women. He says, rather verse four, it says, and this is what I think your beauty, he says, should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So one of the things that's interesting is he says that ladies, if you're a wife, the one thing that is going to influence your behavior and how you relate to your husband a lot is fear. Okay. It's going to be a fear. Uh, and you can fill in the blank ladies. It's across the board. The primary motivation of your behavior can be fear or it can be faith. Now you have to understand the context in which this was written because context is very important. In the first century, Rome had a very strong commitment to marriage. However, the point of marriage in Roman society is totally different than the point of marriage in our society today. In Rome, marriages were predominantly arranged. Uh, there was still a notion of romance and we see this in ancient, uh, Roman literature and also their love of the, the Greco Roman idea of Eros, you know, this, mm. uh, overcome with this love, they call, they would call it a fever, right? You know, uh, it's really interesting. And in, in this world though, is that they would basically, when you got to the marrying age is that, uh, the families would look for suitable mates. Okay. Uh, and then they would come together and it was very much a business deal. Girls were married off in their mid teens. So it was very popular for women, girls to be married between the ages of 14 to 16. Okay. Males tended to be married off in their er, kind of their mid twenties, like 24, or 25. That was very common. And part of that was because you would serve sometimes in the military, so you do some other things, but so there's usually on average a 10 year age gap between husbands and wives. Okay. Social structure in the Roman empire, particularly during this period of time was highly defined. Your position uh, in the society was determined uh, or expressed by the way you dressed. So everybody pretty much wore togas until you got into what was commonly known as a tunic, which was a one piece thing that you threw over and the emperor would wear purple. And the reason why they chose purple is, uh, we, when we were in Europe, we went to Barcelona mm -hmm. and in Barcelona was one of the early, uh, outposts of the Roman empire. And they were doing some, uh, kind of remodeling or digging and they dug down and they came across some maroons. And today, uh, you go to Barcelona and you can go down and you can see one of the earliest Roman outposts and how it was set up and every, it's incredibly preserved. 
and it's really neat. You go in, you get in this elevator, you go down a few floors and then it opens up. There's a high ceiling, but they've exposed it all. And they have, I mean, they have all this stuff. And one of the things that was so fascinating to me is they had a textile operation there. They had winemaking and textile and some other things that you could Hmm. see. And what's really interesting about it, not trying to be gross, just salty, (laughs) is that uh, in the wall, um, on the main street is people would walk up and down the street and then they would stop and there was this little trough and you'd pee in it. So men would just stop openly on the street and pee into this thing. And it went into the textile factory. And the reason they wanted urine was because it's high in ammonia. Okay. And ammonia is the key ingredient that they would use to dye all of the textiles that they had. And so some colors are really easy to dye with the ammonia, but the most difficult color to make, the most difficult dye for any textile or any clothing was purple. Mm. So only the emperor could wear purple. And then if you were a senator, one of the original families, and you were at that high level, then uh, you could wear a white toga with purple sash or purple lines on it around the hem. And then if you went down into the equestrians, they were allowed to wear togas with certain colors. And so basically it was social uniforms. Right. Isn't that interesting? So you would walk down the street and you could see before you even got up to somebody where they were in the social hierarchy. identify them, yeah. Yeah, you absolutely knew who they were, how important they were, and where your status was. So it was very hierarchical, very structured, and the way you dressed dictated your, uh, or communicated your position, okay? So what would happen is uh, the lower classes then we're allowed to wear, like I said, different colors until you got down to the tunic, which was just a, a standard color. And that's what all the slaves would wear. Kind of a, a really uh, dirty white, maybe a grayish, uh, a tingiest beige, these types of colors. Females would never be married to a male in a lower class. Okay. Okay. And... What's interesting is it wasn't until 18 BC, 18 years before Christ was born, that Augustus, the emperor, he then allowed free men to marry. And so you, uh, so if you were a, a servant or a slave, you could earn money and you could buy your freedom and you could earn it and you get out and you would become what is known as a freed man. And even though you weren't technically a citizen, right, you couldn't be re-enslaved, but then you were allowed to marry a citizen. And we see, we wonder how this works out because Paul was a Roman citizen, right? But what's interesting is that uh, in Timothy, in the same case, it's really just fascinating because how did Paul become a Roman citizen? You know, were both of his parents citizens? We don't think so. And so anyway, it's just an interesting question. But the Mm. bottom line is this, is that when a couple got married, the female would pay a dowry to the male. Okay. And this is important because... If they got divorced, the male would have to pay the dowry back and then she would go back and under her father's protection. Okay. So what's interesting about that is what, what's going on here is that marriage was very common. You pretty much had to get married in Roman society and your spouse was picked for you. To get married, it was just simply a business arrangement and you had to agree to live with each other. But if you couldn't live with each other, the wife could say, I want a divorce. 
the her dad actually she couldn't do it but she'd request her dad would say i want my daughter back and i want my daughter dowry back and then that husband had to give it mm. okay which it's interesting because on the one level women wives didn't have a lot of power right because they couldn't own the property and stuff like that but on the other side they had a lot of power right and we'll talk about that in just a minute but i just thought it was really fascinating that when peter gives instructions to wives they are hearing what he said through this filter through this societal structure and i thought that was really quite amazing yeah i mean i think one of the things i've started really picking up on over specifically this book but just in general as i've started doing bible studies with you is it's really important to try to understand the context of who it was written for and then try to hear it in the same way they heard, they heard it, it right mm-hmm. like because we look and listen to things the nowadays and it's like that sounds so archaic or you know um it can sound almost kind of crazy that they were doing stuff. But then it's like, if you were in that culture at that time and you're listening to it through that lens, that's, what's going to give you the context you need. Don't Mm -hmm. read it just verbatim for word to word and go, Oh, you know, this is, what does it mean to me? Right. You know, it's instead, what did it mean to the people at the time and who was it written for specifically? And that's how you learn that biblical principle and its purity. And that's really the essence of critical thinking, right? So Peter wrote this letter to the first century church. He, he wrote it for a specific reason mm-hmm. in order to understand how it can make a huge difference in our lives today. I and we need to really understand who read it mm-hmm. in order to maximize the real truth that is buried within these words. Yeah, and that's in, in the way that I think these women who were wives who would read this, what he's saying is this, is you have to understand your authentic value, Okay. And that is, he establishes in chapter one, Peter, that we have a new identity. And then the value of that new identity in chapter two, he's building you into a spiritual house. Therefore, if you become a a rebel and a prideful person and a, I demand my rights and my demand this, I demand that. And he's saying, look, it, it doesn't matter if you're an employee, if you're a slave, if you're a servant, if you're a wife, he goes on to say everyone else. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Husbands is well, he goes, the bottom line is that is not going to reflect God building you into a spiritual house, right? Mm. It's going to be the opposite. It's going to wage war with your soul. So ladies, you have to understand your authentic value. And so you need to ask yourself as a woman, what is the real thirst of my soul? And when you ask that question, it's going to cut to the very core of your definition of what it means to be a human being. And this is why worldview is so important, is that it defines the reality in which you re- exist. Today, it's very common to go to university and the secularists, scientific materialists, humanists, atheists, uh, which is the predominant belief system of professors in the soft sciences, social sciences, liberal arts sections of the university. And they all hold to the position is that you don't have a soul, right? You don't have anything about, you know, human beings are malleable and they can be whatever we want them to be. And and gender is a social construct and male and female is irrelevant. And so that's the predominant uh, ideology. But the problem is, is if you can't uh, answer that question for yourself and say, well, no, 
you know, God made males and females. I have a soul. I'm a spiritual creature. And so in this reality, uh, do I believe that men and women are unique and special creations of God? And if so, what does it mean for me to be a woman created by God? What unique and special thing has he designed within me at the very level of my soul? And so this is a critical question to think about and then answer if you are a woman and if you're a wife, because what makes you unique as a female is what makes you different as a female. And it is the soul context and understanding the thirst of your soul. So in other words, it's like this, what am I as a female and a wife driven to do whether I know it or not, what is those core things, whether I, if I recognize them or not, or I'm conscious of them or not, that actually are driving me, you know, cause sometimes I'll say to myself, this is what I want and it's going to make me happy. And you get it and you're not happy at all. You're miserable. Right. You go, wow, that was a mistake. I didn't actually meet the thirst of my soul. And so that's what we're trying to get at here is I'll understand your authentic value and by understanding how you're created and wired. And then that reveals the thirst of your soul. And then that ultimately uh, drives you towards what ultimately will bring uh, depth, meaning and fulfillment in my life. And this is why I am such in opposition to feminism. Because feminism teaches uh, a certain ideology that I think steals from women the capacity to feel uh, or experience the quenching of that thirst in their soul. They pursue the things that feminists say you should pursue and they find out they're tremendously unhappy, they're miserable, they're alone, and they don't understand why? So if you look at the unspoken premise of feminism, uh, the unspoken premise of atheism and scientific materialism and everything else, they actually end up betraying their own positions. In other words, they all assume that women need to experience a sense of value. And then they try to say, this is the way you give value to your life. For instance, an atheist would say to a woman, you need to experience value. So you need to think this way, believe these things and pursue these things and you'll be happy. You know, get rid of religion, pursue your own thing, make yourself your own God, blah, blah, blah. And women do that. And guess what? They're unhappy in feminism. They say, look, you have to be, uh, equal to men. You have to, uh, assert your rights and you have to make sure that you've tear down the patriarchy and you have to make sure that, uh, you're, you're in a relationship with a man who treats you as an equal all the time. Uh, you need to go out and get highly educated, you know, so that you have a career and your career should come before having children. And as a matter of fact, it'd be good if you didn't even have children. And these are the tenets of feminism, particularly third wave feminism today. Uh, we've talked about them in the past. And so what's interesting about this is that they betray though their position by they assume without saying it, that women are thirsty for value. Mm. And then they try to give the answer of how to pursue it a worldly answer. But in reality, you have to go even deeper, more upstream than you ever imagined and ask yourself if I am a woman and feminists are why are right, then why do I need to feel value? If I'm a woman and atheists are right, 
Why do I thirst for value in my life? Why am I unsatisfied? Because their position should say that you aren't, you shouldn't even experience that drive. So they end up proposing a structure of values that if adopted, uh, will, will hopefully get you as a female to experience value, to experience meaning, but guess what? It never works. So if there's no difference between males and females, then females aren't unique in what they thirst for in their soul. Okay. Value is what women are thirsting for, and you can only experience value if you admit that you have a soul. Okay, so let's take these basic principles of value and apply it to husbands, because that's who they who they dive into next, right? In, yes. In, or who Peter talks about next as husbands. He addresses them. Well, he says, you know, to husbands, it's really interesting because in the same way, so notice how he uses it to start, it goes slaves do this, wives in the same way, husbands in the same way. So what he's doing is he's giving us instruction based on a previous, right, principle. And we can't forget that principle. And that principle is that in the face of injustice, Jesus did what? He didn't fight back, call down fire from heaven, but he suffered, right? And he didn't retaliate. And then, so he's talking about this to husbands. He says, in the same way, you must be considerate as you live with your wives. So I think it's very important to understand is that husbands, if you're married to a woman, there's going to be, there's, there's a lot of times when she is not going to treat you like you feel you should be treated. And she is going to aggravate you and frustrate you. And she could drive you crazy. And you might get angry and mad and say, look, I I'm sick and tired of this. She never respects me and so forth. And what he's saying is, look, in the same way, you must be considerate as you live with your wives, treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now in this one verse, there is a lot. Remember in Rome, the structure of marriage dictated how husbands and wives treated each other. And according to Peter, societal standards did not reflect God's purpose for human beings. And therefore they would not bring joy or fulfillment in your marriage relationship. Peter says, females are the weaker partner. Now, when I was younger, I used to go around. I tried to say, well, I don't, you know, we need to redefine what this means or try to make it not sound so bad. And I think that's a disservice to what Peter is saying because you don't understand the context because in Roman society, the female was what the weaker partner in the agreement of marriage, right? She had less power than him. Okay. And so he's saying you should be considerate as you live with your wife. Okay. So, he paid people, Peter is saying the manner in which Roman society is structured in the wife and the marriage is at a disadvantage because Roman law put most of the power in what is known as the pater familius, the head of the family, which was the male. Therefore he's saying she's not just physically weaker, but she was also weaker in the societal structure, but that doesn't mean she had no power at all. And we talked about that earlier. And that is, you know, if your father was alive or you had a brother and they had means, you could remove your consent to be married to the guy. And if you, if you did that, guess what? He had to pay the entire cost of your dowry back to your older brother 
or your father, the pater familius. So this is the importance, and you have to understand this, of the census. Now, in America, whenever we do a census, it's called filling out your taxes. We do it every year. And our goal in that process is to make it look like we're poorer than we actually are. We want to make it look as bad as we can, so we pay as little amount of tax, right? right. <laughs> well, in Roman society, it was exactly the opposite. During the census, every five years, you, some, some Roman families was actually hire a person to represent them in the census because in the census is when you declared your wealth, the size of your household, how, you, how much better that you're doing. And if you are doing better, guess what you would do? Your family would move up in the structure. Right. You, the dress that you wore, right, would change. You could go into a higher class. Your standing in society changes based yeah. on your wealth. And of course, once you get into that standing, you know, it's like, oh, I want to get up into the equestrians because this is where all the business deals are made. The, you know, no contracts are made down there amongst the peasants. It's right. all made with the equestrians and that's where I want to be. You see, so it's very, very big deal. And uh, the point is, is that the census was so significant. So a woman could right before the census say, I don't want to be married to you and go back to her family. So even though she was in a weaker position, she wasn't without power. And what's really fascinating in this is Peter tells husbands that they should relate to their wives in a specific way, even though this is a very complicated relationship. He says, the first thing you have to do, what is you need to be considerate, which means you need to think, use your brain, learn how to relate to your wife, what makes her tick, what patterns uh, are her you know, way of thinking. Cause women all have patterns of thinking just like men do. What is she good at? What is she weak at? Where do you get out of the way and let her thrive? And where do you need to step in and help guide and lead? Uh, the word considerate means to consider, to think and ponder and wonder. He goes on to say, if uh, you have, uh, you know, he says you should be considerate and as you live with her. Okay. If you're go-to attitude in any situation is, well, she won't do what I say and she doesn't respect me. And so you get angry and mad at her. Guess what? You are not practicing consideration. All right. So we are to respect them as the weaker vessel. It's interesting that Paul instructs them to love, right? Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says, men love your wives. But here, Peter says in, you must respect your wife. Well, what does that mean? Well, he doesn't say that the basis or foundation for developing an attitude of respect in your life, you know, is super complicated. He says the best way to respect your wife is first of all, the wife you have has the same gift of eternal life and standing with Jesus that you have. So she is an equal child of God, right? right. The second key point is that because of Roman society, men were uh, deified over women. So that's why he's saying, look, she has the same religious or spiritual standing as you do. And then he says, because of this, you don't want your prayers to be hindered. So if you're not willing to consider how to relate to your wife, then your spiritual life can be hindered in its growth. So it's very important. He's saying to make sure that you live with your wife in this manner. So, uh, in our last few minutes that we have, where does he go next now that he's spoken to wives and husbands? Well, he kind of broadens it. He says, okay, to everybody else, notice what he says in verse eight, finally. 
So you notice how he says to, to slaves and he says to wives in the same manner, husbands in the same manner, and then in the same manner here, but he uses the word finally. So he's kind of boom, 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 boom. It's all connected. He says, all of you. So all the followers of Christ in the church, be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay, repay evil with a blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So notice what he says. We must focus on sticking together in love and respond well to injustice outside the church as well as inside the church. You know, it's really important to understand just because you're part of a church and you're in a community where people are focused on Christ doesn't mean you are free from conflict and injustice that you will suffer from your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, right? You're going to suffer that. So he says, look, you must be like-minded, sympathetic, and love one another compassionately and humbly because that's what we were called to. What? To inherit a blessing. You want to inherit the blessing. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteousness and, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know, it's interesting to me where I have seen over the last, you know, 34 years of full-time ministry is that, uh, conflicts always arise in churches and they arise over all kinds of things. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're little, right? And what I have found is the one significant thing about all conflicts in all churches all boil down to one thing. It's not the size, it's not the severity, it's whether or not both parties wanna seek peace. Mm. And the reason conflicts exist and the reason why conflicts are not resolved is because there's always one party in the conflict that says, I don't want peace. Right. And that's, what's interesting. He says, look, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so it's really important. We must seek peace and pursue it. It's not an option. You see in verse 13, he goes on to say this in general, when we have injustice outside the church, it's how we respond that gives us the victory. Listen to verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to, eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you end up being blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So he's saying, don't be frightened of the threats that Nero and all of his governors are making against you. He says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good rather than to suffer for doing evil. So notice what he says in there. It's very important important is even in the face of injustice, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that's in you. And the only way to do that is revere Christ, set him aside in your heart as your priority. And finally, just to kind of wrap up verses 18 through to the end, you have to realize is that our example that allows us to do this, gives us strength to do this, to bear up under injustice is Jesus Christ himself. Look, he says in verse 18, Look, it's Christ also who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So notice what he's doing is he's talking about, my goodness, God is always patient. So you can practice patience as well. He goes on to say, if only a few people ate and all were saved through water, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you as well. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we baptize people all the time because baptism is something that says it connects you to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves you. And baptism is a pledge of a clear conscience before God. He specifically says that right there. It is a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. You know, in your heart, I'm just not kind of flirting with God or kind of halfway doing it. I'm all in. Mm. This is my pledge. 100%. And we should do that. Verse 22, because who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers and submission to him. So this basically says Jesus is your guide. Jesus is your example, but he is also the one who empowers you through faith and the power of his resurrection to bear up under injustice. So the greatest way to go through any conflict, difficult time or injustice in your life is not to freak out, but to follow the example of Jesus. Well, thank you, Pastor Doug, for sharing so much with us today about chapter three. I think that gives us context. We've heard a lot of these verses before yes. in out of context or in very specific context, but reading this whole chapter together gives you a very different view of what it was written about mm -hmm. and who it was for and how we should be interpreting it today. So thank you so much for that. I'm excited to see more about what you have to talk about these verses on Thursday. Cause I know we do a deeper dive on Thursdays. Yes, it'll and, be fun. And give some more context to it. So thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you on Thursday here on the salty pastor podcast. Mm -hmm. Blessings.